quiz for you this morning. We have a picture of a guy up there, all right? And just, it's not me, all right? Who is that? Who knows who that is? Jonathan Edwards. Wonderful. He was at the center of what is called the Great Awakening. The time in the the 1730s, 1740s, when revival broke out in the colonies of America, where, where many people were converted to Christ. It was a time when, when many were awakened to their sin and their need of a Savior, and people were turning to Jesus in groves. Some came from sinful backgrounds, lives filled re- with rebelliousness and, and debauchery and wickedness of all kinds. And, and they turned to Christ and turned from their sin to follow Jesus. Others came from lukewarm backgrounds. Church and religion played but a small part in their lives. Rarely at church, but naming Jesus, but really living in apathy. And many of them turned from their apathy and their hypocrisy and turned to the Lord with their whole hearts. Others came from religious backgrounds, lived lives, fully going to church, involved in all the religious activity, but their hearts were far from God. They turned from their hypocrisy to trust in Jesus alone and not in their religion um, so many people were coming to Christ in those days. This is called an awakening. Like, like if people were, were, were slumbering, they were sleeping, they, they were dead, but then they were awakened during those days at, at that time. And one of the central figures was Jonathan Edwards. He was a, a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, in his congregation in his city, the Lord stirred many to follow after the Lord. And so he wrote a letter just to document um, his experiences. He wrote a letter to a, a certain Dr. Coleman of Boston describing what he had witnessed as a pastor there in Northampton during the days of revival. And, and in his letter, he enti- here's what he entitled his letter. So his letter, don't think about like a text or an email. I mean, think about it more like a book, right? is what it was, or, or a treatise. Here's what his title was. And if this is how long his title was, then you can imagine how long his letter was. A faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and the neighboring towns and villages of New Hampshire in New England. Or in short, many referred to that that piece as a narrative of surprising conversions. And in that long letter of him, he, he, he recounts the various ways in which people in his ta- town had, had turned from their sin to God. And it was amazing. Listen, listen to what he wrote. He says, This work of God, as it was carried on, and the number of true saints multiplied, soon making a glorious alteration in the town, so that in the spring and summer following 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love nor of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. And the distress was coming from the conviction of the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He says, there were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time for joy in families on account of the salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn and husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. The goings of God were then seen in His sanctuary That is, in the church, God's day was a delight, and His tabernacles were amiable. That means delightful, enjoyable. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service, 
Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship, every hearer eager to drink in the words of the ministers that came from his mouth, the assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress over their sin, and others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. And in his letter, Edwards described the various ways in which people came to Christ, Um, what was common among them. What was, what was different among them? What kind of effect they had in their lives and in the community? And, and at one point he wrote this, and this is the key sentence I want to read for you today. He says, There was no one thing that I know of, of which God has made such a means of promoting his work among us as the news of others' conversion. Let, let, me, let me read that for you again. There is no one thing I know of which God has made such a means of promoting his work among us as the news of others' conversion. In other words, right, what what God used most in his days, he saw the revival, was hearing the news of others being converted to Christ. And and then it would sort of snowball, like like one person would come to Christ and hearing that, another friend would hear that and say, oh, he's come to Jesus, and they can feel conviction in their heart too, and, the, and then they come, and then someone who knows both of them would, would come, and pretty soon just more and more would realize just the importance of what it means to follow after Jesus. And the cumulative effect was the great awakening in these 13 colonies. And some of these details of this time in this little place in Northampton, this was happening all up and down the coast, but in Northampton, as Jonathan Edwards described his experience, He captured it in his work, A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. And so in that vein, I would like for us to just look at the Bible and look at some surprising conversions over these next four weeks before I'm on vacation in July, and then we start Proverbs in August. I thought this is kind of a a good time to do a a topical series here on just the the different people in the Bible who who had a surprising conversion. And and I would hope that that would promote in us just, just a... God's work among us, and an eagerness to see others converted, and a passion for that. I mean, think about it. The Bible's filled with surprising conversions. It's not difficult to find. What's going to be difficult is the four weeks and, and who we limit to looking at. Like, think about Mac, Matthew, the tax collector. He had a surprising conversion. One ordinary day, he was sitting there in his, his tax office, busy with his work, and along came Jesus and said, follow me. And a well-known, notorious sinner got up and followed Jesus. Eventually became one of Christ's disciples, wrote a gospel, and died for his faith in Christ. Or Zacchaeus, the small little tax collector. Danny DeVito, if you will. Had a a surprising conversion. When Jesus came walking by the road, he couldn't see him. So Jesus, Zacchaeus climbed up into the sycamore tree. And Jesus said, I need to go to your house. And he said, today salvation has come to this house. Or the woman of Samaria who was there drawing water, who met Jesus at the well, experienced a, a, a surprising conversion. Her life was a mess. She'd been married, divorced five times. And, and she was living with a man who wasn't her husband. And yet she came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, was converted, and brought many other Samaritans to Jesus. The thief on the cross had a surprising conversion. He was in the process of being killed for his crimes, yet Upon his death cross, he sought mercy for Jesus, and Jesus promised him life in paradise that very day. And each week, as we go through these surprising conversions, we're just going to look at one example of Scripture of someone, or even a group of people, who converted. 
And this morning, we're going to look at the surprising conversion of Manasseh, king of Judah. Now, some of you maybe never heard of this man before, and if so, today will be a day to, to help you learn about this man. His story is told in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. I encourage you to open your Bibles, 2 Chronicles 33. If you didn't bring a Bible, page 384 in your pew Bible is a place to get you there. We're going to be looking at the surprising conversion of a religious ruler, a rebellious ruler, rather. The surprising conversion of a rebellious ruler, Manasseh. As we go through this, I have really three, three aims, three goals. First of all, I want you to be encouraged in hearing the story of one of the most wickedness of kings becoming a saint. Hearing of one who promoted idol worship to later become a worshiper of the true God. And that, that would be encouraging in your heart. There's something about stories and testimonies of people when they turn from wickedness to righteousness. It just encourages our hearts. And the story of Manasseh will encourage your heart of the change that, that is there. Also, second aim is to stir your heart. Maybe there's some people here, maybe some of the kids especially, right, who, who the, you this morning have come here under the weight of your sin. It presses you like a burden on your back, constant weight. I want you to know that Christ can lift the burden off of your souls. If you just turn to him, and he can take it away as he did from Manasseh. And, and my third aim would be just to encourage evangelism. If Manasseh wasn't out of the reach of the grace of God, then neither are those in your social circle who need grace in their lives, who need Jesus, who need to see that there's something more than just this life, but joy and abundance can be found in him. And though the taps today, they're engaged in a lifestyle of rebellion, which God is no part, in which their sin is great, they're not beyond the reach of the gospel. And my message this morning might stir you afresh right, to, to come with them and to, to beg them to come to Jesus with fresh vigor. So, Second Chronicles 33, 1 through 20, reads like this. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they'll be careful to do that all I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rulers given through Moses." And Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. And now here's the turn. 
Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance uh, to the, into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer, and, and how God was moved by his entreaty, and all his sin, and his faithfulness, and the sites in which he built the high places, and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Our text this morning splits right in half. The first ten verses speak of uh, Manasseh's rebellion, and then the last ten verses speak of Manasseh's repentance. And the turning point comes in verses 12 and 13. When, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This was really the fulcrum, the turning point of his life, whereas before this time was, was a life filled with sin and hatred and rebellion. And then comes this, this, this fulcrum, this, this point of a decision, a hardship and trial in an Assyrian prison. And then it was changed after that. He knew the Lord was God. God's favor was upon him. And he restored the kingdom to himself. And every child of God has these two divisions. Has what we call a B.C. and an A.D. Before Christ in your life. And an A.D., Anno Domini, right? In the year of the Lord, right? This is, this is before Christ, before Jesus came into our hearts. Right? Before we were living for him and our rebellion, our, our time of that. And then there's some crisis point oftentimes. There's a, a focus point where, where some distress happens and you cry to the Lord. And then after that, Anno Domini, you're, you're living for the Lord. In the years of the Lord, you're living for Him. Is that true in your life? Do you have an, a B.C. and an A.D.? That's what conversion is about. It's about converting from one time we were like this, and then God changes us, and then we are like this. Is there such a divide in your life? You need to be. If you're a Christian, that divide needs to be there. Oh, you might not be able to define this exact point or this exact moment. Maybe that's a season. Maybe that's a, a day or a week or a month or a year or a season of your life. But there's some point in which you, your life is decidedly different from what it was before. And you can see that in Manasseh, what his life was like before and what his life is like after. 
and before we see the magnitude of his rebellion. Now, this, this is a surprising conversion because his rebellion is, is so great. And we're just going to step through here to see how, how great it was. Look at verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign in um, when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Here we're, we're introduced to Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years, a long time. He began when he was the age of 12. We have anyone here who's 12? David, stand up. King Manasseh. <laughs> All hail the king. And then he reigned for 67 years. Still reigning when he's my age. And Dirk's age and Andy's age and many of us. When he finished his, his reign, he was 67. It's the longest any king in Israel. Or Judah. And he didn't do well. Look at verse 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. It's customary in the Chronicles to grade the kings, whether they were good or bad. In fact, look back at chapter 29, verse 2. This is Hezekiah. This is Manasseh's father. We, we read this. And Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. Hezekiah got a passing grade. Uh, Ahaz. Hezekiah's father, this would be Manasseh's grandfather in chapter 28 and verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. So you have Ahaz who did bad, and then you have Hezekiah who did good, and now you have Manasseh who did bad. And Manasseh's sin was particularly bad. You can argue even that Manasseh was the worst of all the kings of Judah. Because according to Jeremiah 15 verse 4, the sins of Manasseh were so bad that God sentenced Judah to destruction because of what Manasseh had done. Jeremiah 15 4. And I will make Judah a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Because of Manasseh's sin, he brought judgment upon a whole nation. It would be as if our president was so bad that God saw him as such evil that he says, I'm going to destroy the United States of America. Give it a few generations. Irrevocable judgment because of what Manasseh did. And indeed, 50 years after the reign of Messiah, the Babylonians came, took them off to exile. And that's why Manasseh's conversion is so surprising, because his sin brought the downfall of Judah, yet he still came to know the Lord. You say, what, what did Messiah, Manasseh do that's so bad? Well, five things in the text, and I just want to travel through them quickly. Okay, the first thing we see is this, is that his rebellion was against a godly example. Manasseh's father was Hezekiah. He was a good and godly king, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And if you just even read through Second Chronicles 29, 30, 31, 32, you could just read about all the good that Hezekiah did. His first priority was to restore the worship of the Lord. And his first order of business was to establish all that, that God had told them to do, that his father had taken down. He wants to establish that. So he pronounced by, by, divine, by sovereign decree in the nation that we're going to be worshipers of the Lord. 
We see him in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, reinstituting the Passover. And, and in chapter 31, the reform continued to destroy all the idols in the land. A great summary of Hezekiah's life comes in chapter 31, verses 20 and 21. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah. <coughs> and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandment seeking his God, he did with all his heart and he prospered. He used his position of authority to push the worship of the true God, being a godly man. But Manasseh did was evil in the sight of the Lord, despite his father's godly example. And thus, it makes his sin even worse. To sin against the light is worse. I mean, it's one thing to sin in ignorance, but it's another thing to sin in the light. If you grew up in a house that, that knew nothing of God, but rather was exposed to sin, an alcoholic father, an abusing mother, with parents who fought and never went to church, it's one thing to grow up in that and then follow after that example, but it's another thing to grow up in a home where God is honored in the lives of your parents, where the Bible's read, where prayers are prayed, where love abounds. <coughs> Excuse me. And then to turn... Your sin is far worse. When Jesus walked the earth, his greatest condemnation came upon those who sinned against the light. It was against the Pharisees and Sadducees that the condemnation came stronger. He cursed Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum because they'd seen more miracles than anyone else, and yet were still hard. He cursed those who caused little ones to stumble. Manasseh had sinned against the light in Omei Rock Valley Bible Church. May you children especially have so much light. May you not turn to be like a Manasseh. Well, second reason, Manasseh's rebellion was against God's commands to Moses. Verses 3 through 6. Look there. It says in verse 3 that he rebuilt the high places. His father Hezekiah had broken down. He erected the altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth. Everything that Hezekiah built up, Manasseh tore down. And everything that Hezekiah tore down, what did Manasseh do? He built it up. He tore down the high places of worship that were situated on a hill or mountain. Hezekiah tore them down. Manasseh built them up. Hezekiah had torn down the Ashtaroth, the, the female fertility gods. But Manasseh built them up again. They're the altars for the Baals. What, what he tore down, Manasseh built up. And, and each of these altars, each of these high places were explicitly forbidden in the law of Moses. To make matters worse, look at verse 3. It says he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He's like worshipping the stars like astrologists do today. Contrary to the law of Moses. Uh, but wait, wait, there's more. Like Ginsu knives. Wait, 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 there's more. Verse 4. He built the altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. So these altars weren't built in some obscure place. They were built in the very center of the house of the Lord, the very temple itself. But wait, there's more. Verse 5. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He's talking about the holy place and the holy of holies, the two courts, where only the priest can go into the holy place. And only the high priest once a year can go into the Holy of Holies. And he's got to atone for his own sins and for the sins of the people. It's a place no one goes into but once a year. And there Manasseh sets up altars in that place, desecrating the place. And just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. 
in verse 6, we read that he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He offered his sons as sacrifice in fire, thinking to appease the gods. Continues in verse 6, he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. It's almost as if Manasseh said, okay, well, let's read the law of Moses. Does the law of Moses say this is bad, I can't do it? <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. What, whatever there was. And, and you know what it's like. You have rebellious children, perhaps. Rebellious people. If you say, do A, they will do B. But if you said, well, do B, then they will do A. Just something in people like stirs up this rebellion, and that was Manasseh. Proverbs 10, 23 says that doing wickedness is like sport to a fool, and that's what Manasseh was doing. He was finding sport in his, in his wickedness. And throughout the Torah, Moses had spoke against these high places and bales and Ashtaroth and altars for the stars of heaven and these child sacrifices and fortune tellings and omens and sorceries and mediums and necromancers or spiritists. Moses spoke explicitly against all of those. Manasseh had no excuse. And a good summary then comes in verse 6. It says, He did much evil in the sight of a Lord, provoking him to anger. And that's why Manasseh's conversion is so surprising. He rebelled against all light and against all written revelation in the Pentateuch, and God was angry with him. Third, his rebellion was against God's promise to Solomon. So not only the law of Moses, but also there's a promise made to, to Solomon. Verse 7 and the carved image of the idol that he'd made, he set in the house of God. And he's talking now, promised to Solomon about this temple, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from this land that I appointed for your fathers, if... In other words, I'm going to make this place, it's going to be for your place forever, if you just simply do this. You be careful to do all that I've commanded them in the law and the statutes and the rules given through Moses. But he forsook Moses and he missed out on this, Solomon, this promise to Solomon, whatever the adjective of that is, Solomonic. This promise to Solomon, he totally missed out. A promise, a blessing for obedience. And that's other places in Scripture like Second Chronicles 7 even speaks about the promises that God gives to Solomon, that if you walk before me as David did, according to all that I've commanded you, keeping my statutes and, and my rules, I will establish your royal throne. It's like covenant with David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. Said, I will give it to you. And, and, and Manasseh had divine promise. All he had to do was follow the law of Moses. And he had divine promise that his rule would be successful and, and reign. But Manasseh rebelled against that promise. And God was true to his promise, because the sin of Manasseh was so bad, he cast Judah out of the land. Well, fourthly, look here. Manasseh's rebellion was as a, a leader. that makes his sin worse. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. See, it's one thing to do evil yourself. It's another thing to pull others along in that evil I mean, it's one thing to be a drug user yourself, but to pull others and to introduce them and to bring them into using drugs and abusing drugs. It's another thing. It's one thing to engage in sexual sin yourself, but to multiply that and to bring others in on that. It's another thing when you seduce others. 
They, and, and those who lead others into sin are under the greatest condemnation. Remember what Jesus said? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea because to take a little precious one, particularly a child, and to lead them astray, it is so bad that better to be tied, tied around a big rock and thrown into the sea to be destroyed. Why do, why do you think it is that people get so irate at child abusers? Because we know how bad that is. And when you lead others astray, you, we know how bad that is. Because you're not, not only doing what you're doing, but you're bringing others into that. You're encouraging that. You're spreading your sin. And he, become under greater, he came under greater condemnation. And that was very surprising in his conversion. Finally, his rebellion was against constant warning. Look there in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Moses had, or Manasseh had so hoodwinked them that they weren't even listening to the Lord anymore. See, it's one thing to be outside the church and be evil, but it's another thing to be inside the church, hearing from God's word and continuing to sin. I mean, think about Judas. What did Jesus say about Judas? The man who walked with him for, for three years and saw his miracles and saw the inner working and saw his heart and his labor and his prayers. And what did he say of Judas? He said it would be better for Judas never to have been born than to walk for Jesus for three years, betray him, knowledge and understanding. And, and so with Manasseh in his sin. <clears throat> it would have been better for Manasseh not to have been born. And Manasseh of all men looked like he had no hope of being converted. Right? No hope. Like, I don't think there's any hope for this guy. He's a wicked tyrant, ruling after his own ways. Everything about himself. Kim Jong-un. Who Manasseh was. Evil, wicked. Corrupting his people. Denying them, using his power. But, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And Manasseh's heart was in the hand of the Lord like a stream of water. God was gracious to Manasseh. God turned that heart. God turned that heart to him. And that's what we see here in my second point here this morning, the account of repentance. This is where the good news shines through. This is the A.D. part, if you will. This is, this, is, this is through the, the crisis point where we, we see hope and God at work. And, and verse 11, though, describes the fate of Manasseh. It says, Therefore, the Lord brought upon them commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with chains of bronze, and brought him to Babylon. Who brought him to Babylon? Well, certainly, right? The human um, people did. Assyrians came, brought him to Babylon. The, right? But who was it? It was the Lord that did that. And God had a reason for that. God was working on his heart. But he's captured by the, the Assyrians. And the Assyrians weren't a new enemy. In the days of Hezekiah, Manasseh's father, the Assyrians had come against Judah to wage war. But Hezekiah had trusted the Lord and, and God had protected Judah. But Manasseh hadn't. And so the Assyrians came and captured them. It says here they're captured Manasseh with hooks. The hooks were probably in his nose. They pierced his nose and hooked him like a bull. 
there are reliefs in the British Museum of the Assyrians pulling away captive kings by their nose with a hook. And here's the king of all kings being taken away captive like cattle. And though these events were horrific for Manasseh, they turned out to be wonderful blessings for Manasseh. It's often how it is that these things that we think are curses upon our lives, maybe loss of job or some sickness, often is the very thing that, that become this, this crisis point in people's lives where they need to look, at, look outside of themselves for help. And here's the king of Judah for decades, captured, taken into custody in a cold, dark, damp, musty prison. The king in the palace had become a slave in the dungeon, and what a blessing it was. Look at verse 12. And when he was in distress, because of his distress, right, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. To get the attention of such a great sinner, such drastic action was needed. In verse 10, we saw how constantly entreating God was to him and to the nation, but they paid no attention. But deep in a prison cell in a foreign land, the king was humbled. As the old adage goes, the one he that cannot pray, let him go to the sea, and there he will learn to pray. Or with Manasseh, it was, let he who needs to be humble, let he who needs to learn to pray go to a Syrian dungeon to pray. And isn't that always the case, right? When we're without our resources ourselves, we, we cry out to the Lord. I just remember September 11th. Um, you, you know, that week, I can't remember exactly what day it happened, but I, I think it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday. And by that Thursday, I was in a church in a prayer meeting people were having. And I remember seeing the, 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 the Congress, the Senate, whatever, on the steps of the Capitol singing together, God bless America. Whenever school shootings happen, campuses, students almost naturally hold prayer vigils. People just naturally pray in times of distress because there's nowhere else to turn but to the Lord. And Manasseh in prison couldn't turn anywhere except to the Lord. He was down and out. The only place to turn was to the Lord. And I love how it describes how he he turned. It was with humility. He humbled himself greatly. And, and humility really is the key to conversion. Where you come to the place where you say, I can't trust myself, I don't trust myself, I'm not good enough, I, I, can't, I can't make it. But you humbly bow your knee to the Lord. And I acknowledge Him as the Lord and the Sovereign One, and me in humility, I will serve the Lord as His servant and His slave forever. And you will see that just the humility come up again I mean, it comes up later. Uh, where does it come up? There it is. In verse 19, it comes up about how he humbled himself. And just that's an important concept when coming to Christ in conversion is to, to humble yourself. Don't, don't rest on your own understanding. Don't rest on your riches or your wealth or your knowledge or your power. But realize you're really nothing before God, the all-powerful one. And then look at God's response in verse 13. Manasseh prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew the Lord was God. This is the point of his conversion. Now, we don't know what Manasseh said that so moved God. Um, but there was something that was there. 
In fact, look at 18 to 19, verses down, if you skip down, that talks about this prayer that he prayed. Now the rest of the Acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God. So here's his prayer. And the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they're in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Verse 19. And his prayer. And, and how God was moved by his entreaty. And all his sin. And his faithlessness. And the, the sites on which he built the high place and set up the ashram and the images. Before he humbled himself. Behold, they're written in the chronicles of the seers. So there's this emphasis upon his prayer that is written down someplace. We don't have it. Now, there is a document that, that is called the Prayer of Manasseh that is um, written probably in Greek first and then was written, translated into Hebrew, and it, it, it drifts around. It was included in um, the appendix, the Apocrypha. Sometimes it's there. Church fathers knew about it. When uh, Jerome translated the Vulgate, he included it at the end of Second Chronicles. Luther knew about it, and he translated it um, from, from uh, the Hebrew and Greek into German. Many ancient versions of the Bible, the, the prayer is included, but most say that it's not authentic, it's not exactly the same. It's someone who, who heard about this count, read this count, and then wrote out a prayer that was appropriate, probably, is what, what happened. And I've thought about writing a book called The Prayer of Manasseh, maybe a little book, maybe a book filled with promises. If you pray this prayer of Manasseh, you'll, everything will happen, and it will go really well with you, and I'll sell millions, and I, I have a vision for that, maybe I'll, I'll do that. Um, but here's the interesting thing is that, that if you do pray a prayer like Manasseh prayed, there are promises in the Bible where it will come true. You will be saved. You will be converted. You will come to Christ if you pray that prayer of Manasseh. But I, I want to read for you a, a portion of the prayer that, that's written down that's called the prayer of Manasseh. Um, it's too flowery, I think, really, to be exactly what he prayed. But certainly I think the elements of that prayer are the elements of what he prayed and the elements of what we all need to pray. Starts off this. O Lord God Almighty, God of our fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of their re- righteous posterity, Thou who hast made the heaven and the earth with all their order. And then he goes on to speak about all the, the different ways in which God is high and exalted. And then comes the point of humility in this prayer that someone wrote. He says, The sins I have committed are more in number than the sand of the sea. My transgressions are multiplied. O Lord, they are multiplied. I am unworthy to look up and see the height of heaven because of the multitude of my iniquities. Sounds like David in Psalm 32. Sounds like the the publican in Luke 18. He says, I'm weighed down with many an iron fetter so that I'm rejected because of my sins. And I have no relief, for I have provoked thy wrath and have done what is evil in thy sight, setting up abominations and multiplying offenses. And now I bend the knee of my heart, beseeching thee for thy kindness. I have sinned, O Lord. I have sinned, and I know my transgressions. I earnestly beseech thee. That is, I beg you, God, forgive me. O Lord, forgive me. Do not destroy me with my transgressions. Do not be angry with me forever or lay up evil for me. Do not condemn me to the depths of the earth, for thou, O Lord, art the God of those who repent. How's that? You are the God of those who repent. And in me, thou wilt manifest thy goodness, for I, as unworthy as I am, you will save me in your great mercy, 
and I will praise you continually all the days of my life. For all the host of heaven sings thy praise. Thine is the glory forever and ever. Now, this probably isn't exactly what Manasseh prayed, but he certainly prayed these sorts of things, right? Acknowledging God and then humility of heart, confessing his sin and pleading for mercy. And that's the prayer that we all need to pray. God, you are great and sovereign, and I am sinful, and I have sinned in these ways, and I have blown it. I'm guilty before you. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. Would you come and forgive me and cleanse me and wash me whole? And that's the prayer of Manasseh, and that's the prayer that will be answered. It's how people come to the Lord. It's how they cry out to him. And you can move God by your entreaty in a similar way. Just as verse 13 says that God was moved by his entreaty. And here's what it means he was moved. He heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. That's amazing that he brought him into kingdom, into his kingdom. When kings are captured in the ancient world, they were killed as they are today. You capture a king from an ancient world, you're going to kill him. But Manasseh's fate wasn't in the hands of the Assyrians. Manasseh's fate was in God's hands. When the Assyrian king had come to attack Judah in the days of Hezekiah, he encouraged the people of Israel with these words. He said, Be strong and courageous, 2 Chronicles 32, 7 and 8. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with them, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us the Lord our God to help us fight our battles. And so also the Lord was with Manasseh even in the prison. Stronger than Syria, and somehow he restored him back to power in Israel and Judah. And it's a sovereign pleasure of God that accomplished these things. And we see in verses 14 to 16 how Manasseh's repentance demonstrated <clears throat> itself to be true. Manasseh returned to the city and changed everything. He fortified the city, fortified the army, reinstituted temple worship, and every evil that he did, he undid. Look at verse 14. And afterwards, he built the outer wall of the city of David, west of Gahan in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. He took away all the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built in the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them all outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it the sacrifices and peace offerings of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. <clears throat> Just like those in Thessalonica, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And the sov- as a sovereign king, he pressed all of his people to worship the Lord, using his power for good this time rather than for evil. At worst, they were evil, and now he brings them into good. It's a bit like what took place in the days of Constantine. Christians are being persecuted. And Constantine 3.13 issued forth the Edict of Milan, which brought a, a legal end to the terrible persecution against Christians that come upon the church for nearly three centuries. It, it announced the toleration of Christianity. And then, just um, 11 years later, in 324 AD, an imperial edict was announced that all, ordered all soldiers to worship the supreme God on the first day of the week. In other words, we're becoming a Christian nation now. This led to many being baptized in the, in the Roman Empire, brought into the church. Now, sadly, right, how did that work? It didn't work very well because the subjects 
right? Commanded to worship God, commanded to be baptized. Here you got to come in. Everyone was a Christian. And they merely brought their pagan practices into the church because their hearts weren't changed. Now, outside, rather than being worshiping the, the Roman pantheon, they, they worshiped Jesus. They just changed the name, but they kept the practice. And that's what happened with Manasseh <clears throat> as he commanded the Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Look at verse 17. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed the high places, but only to the Lord their God. That is, they continued their idolatrous ways, but they only changed the name of God that they worshiped but didn't change their heart, didn't change their practice. They still offered up sacrifice. Oh, we're sacrificing to God, but you don't, you don't sacrifice to God in the high places. You sacrifice to God in the temple. And you offer the peace offerings and the thanksgiving offerings that verse 16 speaks about. But continuing on in chapter 33, we, we see that Manasseh's son followed the same way. Look, look at verse, um, verse 22, that Manasseh's son, who was Ammon, says this, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh's father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh's father had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh's father had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. Sadly, it's the case of many in our land today. They have a name that they're Christian, but they've never been converted in their heart. Oh, externally they attend church. They sing praise to the name of Jesus. But in the end, they're, they're no different than those of Judea, Judah under the name of Manasseh. You're going to worship God. Okay, so I'm going to worship God. Where do we worship God in our culture today? Where do we worship? Worship in churches. So they go to church and, and say they're Christians and say everything's okay. But their heart's never been changed. They're just worshiping a name with a, a shallow heart. A change of heart's what needed, right? You need to change a heart like Manasseh then worked out his repentance and Ways like he did. I just say, what about you? Has your heart changed? Do you worship the Lord from your heart? Have you been humbled? Are you proud and arrogant? Before the Lord, do you, do you bow the knee to him? Are you his servant? Are you his slave? Have you pleaded for mercy before the Lord? And wherever you are today, just so Manasseh is your model. You can follow after him. Well, John Newton's friend, William Cooper, wrote this. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And there's the good news of the gospel. As vile as we are, as much as Manasseh, we can just look to the fountain filled with blood that comes from Emmanuel's veins and know that we can be washed clean and pure in the in the blood of Jesus. And that's just one conversion story. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at several more, just pulling out, just pressing you all, just to say, you know, are you there? Do you have this AD part, BC part of your life? Do you have this AD part of your life? And, and I'm going to pick up the most surprising conversions. We might have hope. We might be encouraged. And that we might repent if we need to. So let's pray. Father, I would pray that you would do, do your work among us in this series of surprising conversions that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. Next week, I think we'll look at the woman at the well. I pray, God, that we would be encouraged by her, just one who lived in serial adultery, serial sexual sin, divorce, 
a woman of the streets, if you will, came to Jesus. God, and, and may we realize that, that for our neighbors and for our friends who are walking and pursuing after their own passions, there, there's nobody outside your reach. But, but people engaged and involved in those things are seeking desperately for something. They just find it in worldly pleasure. God, rather than finding their delight and satisfaction in a, a heavenly pleasure and a heavenly joy of knowing what it is to have sins forgiven and to walk in clear conscience before the Lord and to know that before you we can stand complete. So God, I, I pray that you would use these next three weeks and even, even today to convince our hearts, pierce our hearts, encourage us. God, encourage us in stories. God, encourage us to be out telling others the hope that we have in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.